Sligo O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. For our second Slugger O'Toole podcast, we're joined by Chris Donnelly. Chris Donnelly is known to readers as Slugger for his political views, but today we're talking with his day job. He is a teacher and principal of St John the Baptist Primary School in Belfast, and he's going to give us his views on education during COVID-19. So Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. It, it's, it's been a, a massive change to, to the system, because I know as a parent, but I'm sure for you as a, as a principal, it's been a, a massive shift. It really has been, like, I suppose, like, like everybody in society, we didn't really see the, this coming. We, of course, were watching from afar what was happening in China. And then obviously, gassed at what we were seeing in Italy. But even at that point, I think late February, early March, we didn't think it would come to this really as quickly as it did. And then I suppose that when that week came around St. Patrick's Day, you know, the, the, the lockdown and you know, the, the closure of the schools, it's meant from, from the perspective of schools has been really a, a high-octane operation to try to get teachers initially prepared for the new approach. Uh, and then obviously alleviating their own concerns and, and, and parents at, at that time. And then putting those changed uh, procedures and practices in place. So it has been, you know, from then to now, it's been a couple of months. And I think it does take a while for people to get in the groove of that different approach. And really communication has been such an important thing throughout this. And I think that's really an important theme. Communication within a school community with with staff, collaboratively amongst staff members, but with parents and children too. Because my, my own son, he was in P1 and I was helping out. His school was some of the stuff about going online. But, but what shocked me was how little guidance the kind of education authority was giving schools about how to actually do online classes. I mean, a lot of teachers were kind of, and a lot of schools seemed to have to muddle their way through it. I mean, was that your experience? Yeah, I, to be honest, I wouldn't be hard on the education authorities. It's, you know, the, the way teaching and learning traditionally takes place in school, children are in the building. Children, you know, children are here between the primary one, kids maybe nine o'clock to two o'clock. The older, the older they get, moved to two thirty or three o'clock. Of course, there has been a lot of in terms of uh, the development of ICT within schools, but it has never been beyond. Perhaps you know, schools would have used seesaw and class dojo and other programs, maybe to communicate with parents in the, in, over the last number of years, uh, and that would have been very useful to share with parents different things that are happening within the school. Maybe if there's a the school, a class, particular class, or, or putting on an assembly, the teacher might video it and share it, or maybe on a Friday, the spelling test or mental maths test, sharing that, or for messages, you know, to say, look, we're going to have a trip next Wednesday, you know, it's going to cost three pounds, you make sure that you're bringing in the forms. That is really the nature of that, that type of, you know, distance relationship through ICT has uh, developed over time, and certainly within primary schools. And I think also within post-primary. So the idea that, you know, when this happened, I wouldn't be hard on terms of education authorities because it wasn't something that we ever thought, this idea of the remote learning, we never thought it would come to this. So really what schools have had to do and, and the education authorities is try to put other measures in place which quickly would, you know, upskill teachers uh, and also educate parents and children in how we're going to have to get through this. Yeah, I remember um, being in Asta at the start of all this and uh, a guy was talking to the woman in front of him in the queue and he was asking her how she was getting on with uh, homeschooling and she turned around and said, um, 
homeschooling, homeschooling. I told him, where's your phones, where's your talbots, now go away and leave me alone. And But she's a uh, swear words more than that. But I'm just kind of curious, in your view, how have parents been getting on with it and how have the kids been getting on with it? Well, I think you know, I, I would talk to principals from a lot of different schools. We would have, you know, particularly, obviously, since John the Baptist School in West Belfast, so we would have a weekly principal cluster meeting through Zoom to discuss issues that are arising within different schools, give a heads up and work collaboratively then on, on different approaches, which is, which is very, very useful. It's a good way of operating. Uh, and, but certainly within my own school, and, and also talking to principals in other schools, you know, Parents have been doing their best and, and really, you know, there are a lot of stresses and strains that parents are under. Many of them are key workers, so they're having to try to juggle work. Also, anxieties they might have over loved ones who throughout this might have been vulnerable and might have, might have caught the, the virus. Uh, and then obviously concerns around what's happening, you know, with their own children in the house. So th what, what I've found is that we have to be very receptive to the different position that parents are finding themselves in. And, you know, how we do that is we, we have to have a high octane approach towards ensuring that the parents and children are engaging. And that means the teacher, you know, I'm in the school every day because we are a key worker. We, we offer key worker supervision for children. So every day we have a number of children in the school. So I'd be in and other members of staff and, and really then the teachers would be filtering through me every day any issues that they have with regard to children and parents engaging. And over, you know, we'll make a list of that. And if, it be, if it's a recurring theme around certain names, then it's a proactive engagement through phone calls with parents, through text messages, and also to the point of some home visits. And what that's about is identifying, is there an issue? And the issue can be the parents under incredible stress, you know, real stress and issues. And, and we're trying, you have to cut a bit of slack at times, Brian. On other occasions, it's perhaps that the parent didn't realize that Maybe that, that anecdote that you just gave me, maybe the parent didn't realize the significance of, of, of not engaging in this remote learning approach. And it's really, it's a quick education post to the parent to say, listen, no, it can't be that way. You have to be going, you know, engaging with us. You have to be helping the child and we will be helping you and your child at the same time. But we need that daily communication through, in this school, it's through Seesaw. Uh, and then I suppose, you know, the, at the other end, so you'll have, you'll have those issues uh, but for the overwhelming majority of parents, you know, there, there's, there's a real engagement. And we also, through that process, identify if the issues may be that they're not comfortable with working with the ICT, the technology. So, you know, we would have a number of teachers. One in particular, I nicknamed him Dr. Seesaw in the school. He's fantastic, uh, Mr. 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 Morgan. And he has then, we, we have been arranging like clinics, appointments where parents have been on, on, on specific dates coming in at one-to-one, -one, social distancing. And he's been, you know, tutoring them up in, in the school and how best to make the most of it, to give them the confidence of, often in that. And on other occasions, it's the fact that you might have, and I'm thinking of another example, it's five, six children in the house. So we've been, you know, loaning out iPads to parents. And again, you're getting a week, a quick tutorial session on what we want them to be using with the iPad to, to get the most out of it. So, you know, the school has to be extremely proactive and that's what I find all of our schools are, you know, school leaders, the teachers, proactive in, in identifying where the issues are. And then what exactly is the most pertinent issue for the parent? Is it the stress and strain that they're under because of their job? Is it because they're having difficulty with the ICT? They may have access to ICT, but might not know what to do with it. Is it because maybe the child's not playing ball and then we're, we're asking, you know, put them on the phone to me and let me have a, a talk with them and maybe G them up and give them rewards and incentives that way. 
So, or is there a problem even with just access to technology? Do they not have the iPad or laptop? So the school is compelled, you know, almost morally obliged to see what we can do to close the gaps in each of those different scenarios. But for most kids, I mean, they did have the access, the broadband at home, they had the devices, phones, whatever. Yes, I mean, what one along along through this journey, the uh, you know, I I commissioned a survey yeah. uh, through using text messages to get to our parents. Say, listen, there's 18, 19 questions where I want you to go. You know, essentially click of a link, and they were able to, and then we were able to get the feedback, which was excellent. And and some of those questions were around: Do you have the internet access? access or not is that the first problem is there a difficulty in terms of accessing uh, devices in the household what are you finding do you find for instance more are you more amenable to the hard packs that we would have we would have given at three different occasions so far we've had parents coming in on different dates to collect packs for different children the different year groups as well as completing online learning activities through seesaw and i know other schools are using google classroom or classroom dojo and so you kind of find the feedback, Brian, I think it's very important. How are the parents responding to this and how are they perceiving their children responding? And, you know, the qualitative data and, and feedback we got through that then informed further approaches. So we found, for instance, and by the way, the, the, it was phenomenal. I think the level of engagement was between 85 and 90% of our parents actually completed that online uh, survey, which you'll know from surveys is a phenomenal number. And, you know, they were also sections that were given comments. And, you're, you know, some of it's heartbreaking when you could read the stress. You know, they were tremendously positive towards what the staff are doing, towards the teachers are doing. But you're getting, look, we're both key workers. I'm worried the child's, you know, I'm worried I'm not able to give enough. Uh, and, and the child's finding this hard or maybe I'm finding it hard. I'm, I'm overreacting maybe at times to little misdemeanors and what the child's doing. So people being very honest with you. So that led us, you know, the school has to then be responsive to that. We created what we call pastoral packs, identified, I think it was between 45 and 50 children with social emotional behavioral issues. You know, these pastoral packs were trying to help help scaffold how the parent could be approaching uh, within the house with, with, with its visual timetable, reward cards, social stories, different things that would mirror what we would do in the school, where, of course, we can have within a classroom maybe children getting released at times to go to the nurture room, the sensory room, having those merit system approaches that reward the children, trying to replicate. And of course, you're never going to be able to do that completely because teachers are professionals of what they're doing and they're in the environment that, that, that's optimal for to get the best out of children that way. But every little bit helps. And yeah. that's what this is about, trying to create a little bit of uh, confidence sometimes for parents and trying to almost skill them up sometimes and give them some strategies that are going to work. And have you been trying like live classrooms or you're not allowed to do that? Was there a union issue, wasn't there, about recording? The, the, the issue with the live class, the issue with the live one, there's been, and that would be one where there hasn't been great communication from education authorities. Uh, because at one point, there certainly was something that, 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 that I had come across that had come to me which it said about being beware of Zoom. And Zoom mm. is something that we are using for staff meetings. Mm. Several times a week, we'd be using that Zoom for staff meetings. And I've alluded earlier to how, you know, both in terms of the, the, area, the area learning group of principals in West Belfast, we would have a weekly meeting that. And also in terms of, there's another one, which is a self-evaluative professional development cluster. So teacher to teacher and teacher to classroom assistant, yes, we've been using that. 
the issue, and it ties into the C2K and the issue of child protection and how secure and where, and I know, you know there have been the different examples that have gone viral over the, throughout the lockdown of where there might have been Zoom lessons or Zoom things where it could have been gym class and somebody's gone in. And that, I think, has caused the concern within education. Now, I think that had we have had time to prepare for this whole approach, I think there would have been more of a recognition that maybe the live approach is something that we can we we could work towards. One of the issues with it is that you know I would look at there are some there are some fantastic educational sites out there. You look at Corbett Maths, you look at the Khan Academy, where almost professional ICT people have put together four minute video tutorials, which are dissecting area math teaching, learning of maybe maths or literacy themes. And they're doing it in a way that really the class teacher's thinking, I can't do that sitting. I'm not an expert in ICT. I'm not an ICT technician. I can have a wee mini whiteboard next to me, but that four minute video on the properties of quadrilaterals, if I am engaging with my parents of the day and kids saying, listen, watch this one, watch this one, and then complete that worksheet there and come back to me with problems through Seesaw is maybe more effective than me sitting with the mini whiteboard. But it, it, to me, that's one of the, that's one of, you know, we didn't see this coming and had we have, then certainly that idea of the professional development training in the likes of those, if not Zoom, in a similar type of one would certainly be some area that we would work on in terms of professional development to, to deal with this. Yeah, because I, I think, because my, my view is, I mean, I work in the internet now. I've done since the, the mid nineties. So, I mean, I, all this stuff is, is second nature to me. But I think at the start of it, we all like, got and tried in Zoom and then Zoom quizzes or family and all this type of stuff. But for me, the kind of limitations soon became obvious that it, it's just not the same. I mean, I know it's good for certain things like you know meeting catch ups and save you a commuting trip. But you kind of realize that a lot moving stuff online, you lose hell of a lot. And especially in education, you kind of appreciate how much is involved in terms of socialization with kids, you know, interacting with uh, the classroom assistants, with the teachers, with playing, with the their lunches, there's a whole 90% of other stuff that you, you can just never really replicate online. So it, it seems all we're really doing at the moment is, is kind of putting kids in a holding, holding pattern really until things get back to normal, isn't it? We're, we're limiting the damage. Yeah. That's what we're doing at the moment in education. That That's, you know, children aren't really, you could not be, advancing academically you know you can't go from nine o'clock to three o'clock five days a week in the classroom environment with you know then the the learning rich environment that that entails whether the learning that's on the boards not not i'm not even talking about the teaching learning being communicated between teacher and child it's child to child it's worksheets it's you're finishing this but you're then going on maybe another activity the comment that the teacher observing something intervening quickly it's a it's a very, could be a very marginal intervention but it sets that child on the right path very quickly and then other children are being addressed in the same way that can't be done anywhere near the level of efficiency through either the legs of the remote learning or even through putting 30 kids on a zoom and teachers just essentially delivering a seminar even children that age brian you know they i mean it's one thing even university students, and I've, you know, I've, I've been watching some, some talks, you know, the Ireland's Future Twitter talk, which is very good a couple of weeks ago, and others have, have been doing, but 
if you imagine, for you imagine you get a primary one, two, three, or four child and ask them to sit in front of something like that for any length of time, that it's it's alien to them. That approach is alien to them. So you know, there's certain I think in post primary, it's something that could be done a bit more, but even then, it's limited. But you know what what we're about professionally as teachers and educators is trying to find every angle that we can to you know help our kids possibly and academically so you know it's something certainly that schools will be i think more and more now looking at well on that i mean you've been teaching now what 20 years i'm sure is it yes yeah 20 20, years (laughs) and in that time i mean you you've bald spot the short when we're looking at the top too brian stress (laughs) yeah that's it uh in that time because we've both kind of lived through this whole growth of like social media and internet and stuff like this here have have you noticed a difference in in kids because the one thing that i i'm horrified at right is when i go i bring my guy to the park every day and i very seldom see other kids out and i look around our neighborhood and you can see the what the families with kids because they see the little hand painted or the drawings on the windows and even before all this, I very seldom ever seen those kids outside or getting out and playing or in the parks. And you kind of wonder, like, we've, we've seen the closeting kids a lot more even before this, you know, and the more screen time, more in games. And have you noticed a change maybe in those 20 years or from even when we were kids? Do you know, one thing I'd say about that, Brian, is, you know, I remember late 80s, early 90s with my Commodore 64 and then maybe it would have become the Sega. Oh, yeah playing platoon and, and or Emlyn Hughes's international soccer, you could have been at that for hours on days and your mum and dad left you alone to that. So, you know, I, I, one thing, I wouldn't be hard on kids and I suppose that's not even being hard on kids. Maybe we're more of an indictment of parents by implication of what you're talking about. But, you know, I think before this, I would have seen kids out a lot. I mean, we, we, have, we have a lot of active kids here involved and, you know, we've, we've, we've proliferation of after school activities and clubs and the uptake in them is phenomenal but just and i do think that you know where technology has been very useful during the lockdown is it has allowed children to communicate with their friends naturally effort effortlessly through xbox or playstation they're taught and i think that's that's a great thing that they have been on you know they're getting their homeschooling done or maybe they go on at night time playing different games you hear my my kids talking to their friends even facetime chat groups and yeah. I think that has been an enormous benefit through this time because if they would have been in isolation completely if we didn't have that techno, you know, that, that technological advance. One thing I did do, and I do, I do take your point, I think it has been noted is not so much now, but certainly for maybe the first six, eight weeks of, of that from, from the, the end of March through April, you'd have been around here because I was coming down every day and even up where I live in Crumlin, very few kids would have been out. Yes, parents might have been going, taking them out in the daily walk, but very few. And one thing I did here then was, I'll say it at the, when you come into the school, we, we, we started that ribbons for thanks and hope. It was the idea of saying to the parents, listen, during your, uh, during your daily walk, if you're past, because a lot of our children would live in this area, obviously, uh, we have put a, a table in the hall with ribbons. And if you could ask, you know, if you're able to, get the kid to call in and collect the ribbon and write their name or a message and to tie it. And it's for two things, you know, give thanks for the key workers for what they're doing to protect everyone in society, but also hope that, you know, the kids will be able to return the, the sanctity that is a school. 
as you can see, the uptake has been phenomenal. I mean, there's been hundreds of, you know, several hundred yeah, of our kids have been, up. and parents, you know, I would see them, is it, parents, you know, would make sure that the kids are staying in them, uh, tying them up, and then they're taking their photo. And, you know, it's almost that parents have responded because, you know, they, they miss the fact that the kids aren't be going out, aren't able to go out and play with their friends as much as they had. And even, you know, as we're moving forward, Brian, it's something really that we're thinking in schools. Even when we get the kids back in with the social distancing, you know, after schools, clubs, PE, structured play for primary one and primary two, break time play, lunchtime play, all of those things are going to be massively impacted in a very detrimental manner that we're going to have to think long and hard. How do we try to keep the kids active in the school and engage in some sort of collaborative fun play learning whilst also adhering to the guidelines that exist which perhaps are going to rule out certainly maybe for primary one and primary two where it's so important that you have structured play for children learning that idea of playing together and taking turns respecting one another certain skills that's all going to be you know impacted for really open-ended the length of time yeah because i think some of us seen those photos on social media of like schools in, in France where the kids were like had little squares in the box and I, I just think oh, horrific. I did. And I, I, I would honestly say I would rather keep my kid in the house than have to go free that because that's just like awful. Well I mean uh, I can understand I would never criticize school because I would say that obviously that I don't know the circumstances of that school I don't know what had happening in that local community but clearly you look at that picture and you think one word anxiety anyway deep anxiety of you know those children being told that since they got to sit in the box and all the adults were around them wearing PPE with the with the mask around you know their, their face you know I, I would hope and again we have to wait in the, the guidance that's going to come for us here but I would hope that we wouldn't get to the point where we have to put boxes that if we're having smaller numbers of children in the school that there will be conversations with the children to structure so that if we're outside that you know, we talk and say, listen, you got to keep your distance from other children. So it's not maybe as stark as, as, as children sitting in boxes. Yeah. And going forward, I mean, reopening, because everything's in flux. I mean, for, for all we know, they could get some magic here next month. We, we just don't know it. It's such a fluid situation. But one thought I had was that, I mean, a, a lot of primary school teachers, especially are female, uh, you have a lot of, he, he, for whatever reason, males seem to be affected by the, the, this thing more than the females are. And the kind of younger teachers, could you kind of like keep the at-risk teachers at home and maybe just kind of have more of the kind of younger, fitter teachers in or take in some more students, r recent recruits? Because really it's about managing risk is kind of what I'm getting at, as you're saying, like, we we can only do so much here. We we're we're going we can try to protect vulnerable students, vulnerable teachers, but we kind of go about our business as as best we can, and you just kind of try. You know, kind of getting that, but I kind of my business. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think it, you know, without getting into gender age, every mm -hmm. every individual, and this is what every school is going to face. I suppose every workplace, every individual is going to have to be taken in their own context, whether it's a health context, whether it's a child mining, because that, that's going to be something that's going to be absolutely crucial. You know, if it's the case that we have social distancing, whether it's one meter or two meter, then we're going to have children on some type of rota. 
So if children are on some type of rota, parents need to know what that rota is because it's going to impact their child minding, uh, which, which, which if they cannot get that put in place is going to impact their own capacity to you know engage in work, uh, their employment. So not everyone, whatever the nature of the job, is going to be able to do work from home. So all of that's going to have to be organized from the school. And that, of course, that, that means also the children of teachers and classroom assistants and other school staff. You know, if they're if they're whatever circumstances that they find themselves in too. So we haven't yet seen how this, the, pra the practical ramifications of this in a staffing context look to me to be pretty significant from schools. And there's a domino effect from schools due to the fact that schools in one sense, and uh, you know, I don't want to be as crude as this, but they do double up as child minding that that that's that's a side effect, isn't it? It's a natural consequence of of schooling. If children are in a school between nine and three, then obviously parents don't have to concern themselves as do as the child minding at that time. So there, there's an obvious domino effect for how the children's whatever arrangement there are for timetabling in schools for then working out what parents are going to be doing in terms of their own work. So it's the, the sooner we know about that, and again that. There's a bit of a catch-22 problem, I think, that the, the education minister finds himself in for that. If he had to come out right now and, 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 and give us guidance with regard to social distancing, it would have to be the most conservative, probably, uh, because of the fears and anxieties and the fact that we haven't seen what has happened yet in other jurisdictions where children are back at school. So I think that we'll find that even though the clamor within schools, including from myself, would be give us the guidelines as much as possible, as far as possible in advance, because we need to then put those in place to measure out our own classrooms, to find out how many children, to talk to our own staff, to put timetables, to put classes into groupings, to again, then be able to get timetables together to share with parents, for parents then to have plenty of time to you know, work out. I think the problem with that is that I think the education minister probably wants to buy as much time as possible so that People's maybe uh, people can see what happens in France, see what happens in Germany, see what even happens in England, and by having that experience, that 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 experience to look at, then be able to put guidance in place that maybe is going to be loosened somewhat, which will allow for a greater number of children to be in schools, which then will allow will will then ease the situation in society more generally. But that's a time that's a time factor then. Okay, and uh, people are seeing this as kind of like a point in history. It's almost like a renewal point or a shock to the system that's going to have ramifications. And some of those ramifications, I think, are going to be positive. You know, more people maybe working from home one or two days a week. It's going to kind of reduce traffic, reduce pollution, you know, decrease stress. And there's all kind of ramifications, really, that um, we're going to get from this kind of kind of time. I mean, I know you've been busy with firefighting, but have you used this opportunity to think any kind of big thoughts in terms of education or things that you're going to try to change when we go back or kind of looking at the kind of the model of education? Because sometimes you kind of wonder, our, our system does seem quite traditional still, looking at teaching kids facts when people might say, well, why do you need all these facts? You can just Google stuff or ask Alexa, you know, there's... Are we teaching them, should we not be teaching them more like maybe cookery skills or how to work out a mortgage repayment or, you know, <laughs> practical things? I mean, have you had any deep thoughts about education or what you'd like to change? Well, I mean, I do think in so many different ways, this has been a, a time to pause, to reflect, to evaluate priorities. 
or not, I'm not just talking within schools, within people's own lives. I've written about this, uh, where you know I, I probably have been over years. You get yourself bogged down in what your work, you know, what what you're doing with your own work and what you decide to take on, and maybe you you lose contact with friends and family. And I think that very many people have throughout this maybe readjusted their priorities in a sense that, you know, that there's been a great re-engagement, I think, of family and friends, even this whole Zoom quiz culture, which, which myself, every Saturday night, my own family, and there'll be, there'll be people on from Phoenix, Arizona, three, in different, three or four different households, and then throughout Belfast and also in Manchester, you know, our extended family, uh, which is a great kind of reconnection, which, which I think has been very, very positive for many people. I also think that, you know, if we look educationally here, uh, we, we do have a very traditional system, even the fact that we retain academic selection where everybody else virtually has given it up other than a small section within England. And I do think that, you know, we, we need to somehow grasp that nettle because it's not doing us any favours. Of course, I, I get, I've been through it myself in the sense that I went to a grammar school, my children are in a grammar school, and that's because everybody in this society, because it's the way things are, everybody will pragmatically engage. And as a school leader, I will make sure that I feel obliged and make sure that whatever system exists, that you're doing the best for the children in your care. But from an education authority perspective and from those who are tasked in the government level to look overall society and say, look, what are we doing here? What are the implications of our approach? It doesn't do us favors. In a, in a broader perspective, it, it creates m more difficulties in society, more children leave the system without qualifications. That then perpetuates a cycle of socioeconomic deprivation in certain families and communities. And we need to find a way to look at those bigger pictures. And, you know, I take your point. You know, it's always the idea, you know, we moved to our curriculum quite a long time ago to put a new emphasis on skills. And many schools like my own would have like cookery clubs and you know, to, through Tullymore, you know, locally, they would come in and, and, and engage in, you know, cooking lessons with, with the children in different year groups. That is something that gets done, you know, the, the move towards a skills orientation through the curriculum has been quite successful at trying to uh, have that shift to prepare children for society and for the, the economy thereafter. And I suppose in very many people's minds is, you know, environment environment you know environmentalism how are we going to you know because it's been such a great moment to pause reflect and you know look around us and say look look at how you know probably nature has benefited from the lockdown and should that not get us to all to stop and think okay well what can we maybe start to do differently that would give the, the earth a bit of a break and and, and 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 you know build that in not just as something that happens because of a crisis uh, so I do think certainly people are probably more receptive, I think, Brian, if I kind of put the political hat on for a second. I think, you know, I'm almost intrigued as, as time moves on now to see which political party or movement will maybe capture, tap, tap into that, that I think people in society are going to be more receptive to a message which, which, which shows a bit of more uh, idealism and marrying that with a vision and saying, no, we want to have practical, pragmatic policies and steps that we would be willing to take if we were in government. And, you know, it's, it's just going to be interesting to see where that emerges first, whether it's, you know, not, not just in an Irish context, but more globally, will there be somewhere where that takes off? 
Okay, and just on the subject of, of the transfer test, because I know it's been in the news recently, um, what I find interesting is I think generally our primary system is excellent. I mean, the schools around Belfast, around where I live, you live, all seem to be absolutely fantastic, no problems at all. So I'm kind of wondering what magical thing happens to our children at 11 that we seem to need to separate them, because you have primary schools where... All classes seem to be perfectly happy to send their kids to to mix together. Whereas when I look at when I consider you know, some of the grammar schools or secondary schools, then it gets a bit more discerning. You know, some of are a bit known as rougher than others. So I'm kind of thinking that is is there um, a merit in saying that like the primary schools should go on to like thirteen, fourteen, and then at which stage you kind of maybe switch to more vocational versus academic approach because I think that's is that the Dixon system is it and um Craig Avenue does that. Yeah. Um so or because I mean I think when it comes down to it, is the grammar schools essentially middle class parents not wanting their kids to mix with rougher kids when the hormones start coming? Because I, I can't really see any other <laughs> point to it other than sheer snobbery. I don't think it's as I, I wouldn't be as crude as that. I think when a system is in place people respond to a system. Uh, and you know, this system's been in place for so long that people would see that, you know, if, if you, you, know, you started out off that point by saying, look, we have nursery and we have primaries, which essentially are all ability schools. And that's why within the primary school classroom, every teacher would be well-versed in the importance of differentiation. So knowing that you might have between 25 and 30 children in front of you, but you can't just go in and say, right, I'm teaching fraction, decimal, percentage, conversion today because several of the children in that room won't understand the concept of fractions yet. Other children will have a very loose, tenuous understanding of it, maybe a little bit of understanding of fraction, decimals, what to do there. And other ones are absolutely flying or, or are ready to move under the new area. So differentiation is something the primary schools are well-versed in. It's always been the culture within it. And it's meant that you have that you have a social mix and you have an ability mix. And children benefit from that because, you know, the learning that goes on in any classroom isn't just teacher to child, it's child to child. It's also knowing that some of those children might be great at numeracy, others might be great at literacy, others might be the best at PE, others might have a, you know, a, a, might be might be very skilled in music. Others perhaps have an interest in facts and history and geography and the world around us. The, the all-ability setting allows for that environment, which is the most conducive to trying to advance the educational prospects of all children. The problem then happens when you have a system in place which has already front-loaded a division, which maximizes the ability, let's say, for those most academically able as we define it narrowly, and just Maz and English, by the way, at 11, to almost allow them to push on, which is what happens within the grammar school setting. So when you create a system like that, and people have been through it for generations, then it's very difficult, unless the moral and political authority is coming from the top to say, no, we have to be interested in all of the kids. And if we're interested in all of the kids, it's not, to my mind, Brian, about saying, well, the primary schools should then just keep the kids for an extra three years because they've they've almost established the reputation with parents and the confidence. Every post-primary school is capable of doing that if they had the intake balanced. 
if they all had the same level of children who, let's say in numeracy and literacy at age 11, were more advanced than their peers, well, then the teaching and learning that goes on within all of those post-primary schools would adapt to it. So, for instance, a grammar school, if they had more children perhaps who struggled in that, would have to differentiate to meet that. And the, and the non-grammar schools, if all of a sudden they were getting more children who were more academically able, let's say, in numeracy and literacy, would have to adapt to the, at the other end. And therefore, you know, and again, this, you know, this isn't rocket science. We see the evidence of this from across the world. You know, even locally, if we look in the, in the, in the south of Ireland, there are more children who will go on to third, as a percentage, will go on to third level institutions. There are far fewer children, percentage wise, who leave schools with no qualification. So our system creates that massive tail. And that tail, almost, you know, I've written about this in Slugger before, the invisible pupils. They're not invisible in society. They're, they're, you know, if those kids who come out age 17, 18, perhaps 16, leaving school, 19, no qualifications, no prospects on the scrap heap. Well, what happens there? Well, you want to look at your mental health problems in society. You want to look at some of the problems you have around antisocial behavior. The society has to pick up that cost. And, 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 and those people become parents, then that's a cycle as well. So it's the moral and political authority at the top has to gra grasp this and say, listen, we got to change the system. And it'll, and it'll be a difficult thing to do because there's a lot of vested interest in society. But you know, we, we, I think we have to, it's something we do have to address. It's because it's going to help not just the education of our children as a whole, but it actually will help society and our economy. Yeah. I suppose I'm, I'm in, a, in a clunky way, what I was kind of getting at is if parents, we are perfectly happy to send our kids to the local primary school, then wouldn't we, we'd be equally happy to send them to the local all ability school, which was next to the primary school, do you know, I suppose that's kind of yes, way of yeah, looking yeah. up, which kind of makes kind of perfect sense because I'm, I'm absolutely delighted with the primary school uh, my guy goes to, I'm sure a lot of your parents as well. And it just seems to be, we've got this kind of weird obsession with this kind of, at the secondary level, they have all these, these splits, I mean, even between the sexes and the classes, and grammars and non-grammars. It's not unique. I mean, let's, let's be honest, where you don't have academics, where you don't have the grammar, non-grammar divide, you have a proliferation of private schools. So go to, you know, you go to the USA, where I was born. The Catholic schools are the private schools. Go to England. Go to the Republic too, you will see. So, not, but what I'm saying is that it tends to be more of an urban thing. Yeah. And because I think, obviously, within urban settings, the haves and the have-nots within an urban setting, setting can be at more extreme polar ends and that can be a trigger factor for many people like you know anxieties and many people and then that feeds into the notion no we need to get our kid into different schools so it's something and i have no doubt if we did see a move in this society eradicating academic selection towards all ability well then you will see you know you, you will see development of a private school sector but the, obviously the crucial difference there is that's something that people would make that choice to pay their way into as opposed to having within the system. Yeah, and is there mixed messages coming out? Because as far as I was aware, like, like the Catholic Church has said, they, they were against selection, but, but yet a lot of Catholic grammars still have the selection. Is there a kind of mixed messages there? And should the, the leadership, like CCMS or whoever it is, not be coming out and saying, like, no, you just cannot do this anymore? 
Well, I don't look. I think that there are educational institutions that aren't. I mean, you mentioned CCMS. There, CCMS doesn't have any authority over voluntary grammar school, over you know, over over Catholic grammar school. No authority whatsoever over them. So it would be the the board of governors of those schools. So I mean, I take the point because I know that there have been a number of contributions within the last week with Bishop Donald McKeown, Archbishop Eamon Martin, on, and I think they've been reflecting the position of the Catholic Church hierarchy that you know they believe that we should move away from academic selection in this society. But I also think that you know the Catholic Church, like everybody else in society, you know. There has to be a pragmatic engagement with what exists. I mean, after all, Bishop Donald McKeown was the president of Somalia's College. My, my son goes to Somalia's It's a magnificent school. Uh, we have a system that exists here. And I, I, I'm not into pointing out, saying things, oh, such and such, they're, they're, they're being contradictory, they're being hypocrites, the rest of it. People make choices for reasons. And I, it comes down to this, really, Brian, I make this point all the time. When it comes to people's children, ideological, people will perform any ideological somersault that they need to, and they will do so to get the best for what they think, for what they think is the best for their children, because your children are the most important thing in your life. And that is why I think that this discussion, part of the problem has always been, it's been very zero sum. Uh, We need to get rid of academic selection, or we need to retain it. And there has been no effort even to try to get some type of compromise, even a phased approach towards moving away. I mean, I mean I've written about this in the past and spoken about it, but in the mid-70s, 20, 25% of the children went to the grammar school. It's 40% now. That's actually been a big source of the problems that the non-grammar sector has had, that those children have been chipped away from their enrollment. And what that has meant then is that those children, you know that that 15% difference there? Acade- they represented the children with the highest academic ability in that non-grammar sector. That contributed towards, at that, if those children had been in the non-grammar schools, they would have been already having healthier enrollments and already had a mixed ability that was broader, which would have contributed in a positive way towards the culture internally within within those schools. So we have, you know, really not done a disservice to our overall education system and particularly to the heavy lifters in our system, those working in the non-grammar sector, by allowing the grammar sector as a whole to become larger and larger and essentially serving the needs of the grammar before all else. And I think that is something that even people, and I think that that's, we need to be able to have the engagement between those who are in favor of academic selection and those who are against it and say, well, listen, even if we can't get immediate agreement on the big picture issue, surely we can agree on other things which are going to help the overall education system by, you know, helping the the non-grammar sector in terms of budget by enrollment and in terms of academic ability profile of the children. But those are practical decisions that have to be taken by our political leaders. Yeah, I mean... Because I know some of the, the prep schools were complaining about the loss of income and things like this here. Because is there, I've often thought like if you had a brave enough education minister, could you do a nuclear option that say that any school that has academic selection will just not be funded by the Department of Education and say, if you want to go down this route, you can go private. 
completely private but well they can't funds they can't because it's written through, through, through the St Anna's agreement schools have the St Anna's agreement of course you're going way back to when before devolution started between Ian Paisley's led DUP and Martin McGuinness uh, Sinn Féin that's how far we're going back you know that was the basis upon which devolution the DUP got into that St Anna's agreement that academic selection could be continued for the grammar school so an education minister can't actually do that you know Okay, so there's no not unless he has executive approval, and you know, they, and but it's in, you know, but one or two of the parties, I obviously either DUP or Sinn Fein, at the moment could veto that. And obviously, that would be something the DUP would veto in the current context. Okay, so your view down is where we're not going to see any kind of major change to the, the system then anytime soon for economics. Well, I think you know, in, interestingly, there's obviously we're in a real situation at this moment in time because very real concerns that I would have as a school leader and, and most importantly, the children and the parents, the children are primary six children. They've been out of school since the middle of March. Different schools, obviously all schools have tried the best as they can to continue with the education of those children. We don't know yet. I mean, obviously it's scheduled that those children will be back in late August, let's say. The testing companies, the two companies, PPPC and AQE, move their test a little bit into November, later in November, December. And what that was about is that they understand that the only way that they can actually continue with academic selection is if there is a test. Because the other idea that was floated, I think, very irresponsibly is some people that let's ask the P7 teachers to put a grade on top of the head of every kid and essentially say, you get to go to grammar school and you don't. I think that's, that was an absolute nonsense. Uh, it wouldn't, not only would it not work, but it would be uh, an absolutely, it would be disastrous. It wouldn't, it wouldn't alleviate the anxiety of parents or children because they'd be waiting on being told what grade each of their kids was getting and also upon what basis was that grade reached. I mean, children haven't sat standardized assessments in P6s yet, P6, because you set them in the third term, so the kids have been out of school. Even if you were to use data that is that is collated or in primary school it isn't robust only beyond being used within each individual specific schools because the, the arrangements are in vigilation for uh for teaching towards different tests for the evaluation of those tests in a primary school are only um relevant to that specific school if you tried to compare them school to school you would open the floodgates to litigation and it, so, it, so I think that what those what those testing companies appreciate is that the only way that we're going to have academic selection this year is if there is a test. Okay. If, for some reason, let's say in September, October, November, we find ourselves in lockdown again, then I think that this could be the end, certainly for at least a year, of academic selection, and that would obviously be something that would be quite significant in our society because it would force the grammar schools to, to use other admissions criteria for at least a year and then we would see would that trigger another a broader discussion about whether this should actually be the moment where we actually look at fundamental change and is it is it naive of me to think that you could sit down with parents and say look i think we julie would do well at you know lasalle we we mary over here we we do better you know at st dominic's and patty's st mary's would parents go, go is it naive to think parents would go along with that or does every parent assume their children is grammar school material well i would take objection at the phrase grammar school material yeah 
firstly, I don't think we should talk about that because we, we take the point I just made. If 40% of children every year are transferring to grammar schools, what does that mean? That's not an education elite, is it? 40%? That's, that's massive. So, and I, I think that the problem with that also would be, it would be patronizing to parents and it would maybe put, I'll be honest with you, I think it would be putting too much almost influence in the hands of maybe others or maybe maybe professionals who maybe maybe the, the well-meaning, but they would be making advice that, you know, uh, I, I would have, be uncomfortable with. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm not entirely certain the same choices would be offered to children of professionals in maybe schools set in affluent communities as maybe children uh, in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation. And perhaps we'd end up in a worse situation in terms of the social divide than if we actually had a test, uh, which, which wouldn't be ideal either. So if you understand what I mean, I don't think that that, that the idea that the, that, that the teachers or principal talk to the children's parents and say, he's not fit for it, he's not fit for it, send them there. You know, firstly, I don't think that there, there are some parents who wouldn't accept that. And, and, and parents know their children best anyway in terms of, uh, but it, it just wouldn't be a position I think that would be the right one for schools and primary schools to be, be taking. And you, your previous school in Ardoin had, had quite a high pass rate the transfer test I mean how do you how do you approach it within the school no I think every school is in the same position that way I mean ultimately Brian it comes down to parents parents are the ones who decide to put their children in for any of the exams at, at primary school what the, the you know the kind of the the reason Holy Cross boys regard as, as an outlier in that regard was because um, you know a very significant number of significant majority of the child cohort of primary seven each year would have transferred to grammar schools, which simply isn't the case for, for schools based in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, that again, some of that would need, to, some of that comes down to maybe an expectation culture from that, that, is, that is cultivated within the school, from the school leadership, from the teachers, and then it, it becomes almost, there's a momentum behind that the, that, that the parents would have that expectation and maybe down to the child. And again, all of this is not ideal because really we shouldn't need to be talking in that regard uh, with children at age 10, 11. But of course, the, the, the really the, the brutal realities of our system is that we people understand the significance of that transfer decision in terms of the pathways that it sets children, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I suppose we'll wrap up soon, but I, I suppose uh, to finish last, I mean, I think from reading your work on Slugger and seeing your presentations, for me, the key thing is how important education is for people when they're young and especially economically deprived areas. It is so important to get the kids while they're young. Even just in pure economic terms, it makes so much sense putting the money in the education versus you know trying to... Because uh, I think the figures, it's something like 300000 a year costs like a young offender centre. Um, so the money that you kind of put in the early years interventions, you know, the early years programs, everything we can do is kind of so important to kind of help stop these kind of problems downstream. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be your view as well. Yeah, no, I think it is, and and that you know that 
there's two ends of that, I think. One is, yes, interventions as early as possible within a school setting to help the, to help the professionals within the school ensure that children aren't being left behind and to remedy any issues, whether it's speech and language of some children, whether it's numeracy or literacy problems in those early years to try to get the children back on track. But also, and I don't think this can be underestimated, schools have to very proactively raise the bar of expectation amongst parents. Now, the overwhelming majority of parents, that's not an issue. But unfortunately, it can be for some. And, and really, that, that's not necessarily saying parents are overly negligent. Sometimes they don't know where the bar should be. And that can be on very practical things around, you know, reading with the child from a young age, talking with the child, ensuring that they are learning those spellings, ensuring that they are making sure the kids are in, making sure the kids are in on time, you know, intervening in a non-judgmental way, but, but having the awkward conversation as early as possible. No, 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 you got to do more. Uh, and, and helping along too, by the way, and that's really important too. It's not a judgmental. Sometimes it could be, you know, offering some type of support that is going to help the parent at their end. And I think that that is where it's not just going to be a matter of saying, right, what we need to do is get a few extra professionals for certain schools to help. That is very important. And I think that even if we look at where we are right now coming in amidst this pandemic, we know there is an issue in terms of those children who need the school environment the most, the children who are most vulnerable to potentially underachieving they're losing out the most because they need, for a range of reasons, they need the school environment the most. And, and we could almost be looking, you know, I would be hoping that the education minister would look at innovative ways to help out. I mean, I know there was a fund there set up around substitute teachers, which I thought was excellent because they're losing out so much at the moment. But with that same spirit, that same approach, why not allocate some of those substitute teachers to schools? To actually, you know, if they're going to be paid for something, which they should be, why not allocate them to some schools at the moment in areas where he's trying to turn ministers, maybe trying to target potential entertainment and say, look, you need to go into that school, tie in with the school leader who will pinpoint a job of work for you to do, which is going to be trying to remedy some of the difficulties there. So I think we have to be innovative. We have to maybe look at the likes of the extended schools program that is ser that, that serves to provide an additional funding stream. It's quite small, but it's something for schools in neighborhood renewal areas. Why not look again for the, that, that could be where at the moment maybe you might get a Spanish tutor in the school or an Irish tutor or have a number of after-school clubs coming in. If we're not going to be able to do that with regard to after-school sports clubs, you know, the education minister can change the remit of that and say, listen, I'm going to give schools the freedom to come up with action plans that are going to be about how are you going to try to minimize the potential underachievement for that vulnerable group of kids in the next year. Get schools thinking as early as possible so that we're not all firefighting. Come to us now, this side of summer, when we would normally devising, you know, looking at, looking at action planning around those. So it's about trying to, at moments like this, how can we try to plan, you know, plan ahead to minimize the potential for children who are most vulnerable to be losing out? Well, I suppose that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, so say, uh, Chris, thanks very much for your time today. And if you've enjoyed the Slugger podcast, if you hit subscribe for future episodes. The Slugger O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. 
To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.